Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. It's been five minutes. Anyways, go ahead and turn to your notes. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. And like I mentioned, we're really taking some time to lay some just very introductory and foundational things related to the subject of Israel so that as a spiritual family, we're just positioned in a greater way with a greater measure of understanding headed into this fast because we want our hearts to be connected to this. And I've found over the years the challenge as a Gentile of connecting with God's purposes for Israel. To be totally honest, to be frank with you, there's a, there's a challenge that's there. The enemy does not want us connecting with God's purposes for Israel. And he will do everything in his power to bring confusion, to sow doubt, to sow offense, to sow strife on this subject that is so critical to the Lord. And so we're going to take just a few weeks and, and be looking at this in a, in a deeper way. But um, just before we get started, last weekend, I wasn't here. I was uh, in South Carolina with our IHOPU ministry teams. So all of our students from our university were sent out to all these different cities to minister and evangelize and lead prayer meetings and preach at youth groups and churches. And man, I am so grateful for this spiritual community. And I, every time I go somewhere, minister somewhere, and then come back, my heart is just profoundly touched by the privilege of what we get to do here. I mean, 23 years of day and night prayer, are you kidding me? You go in that prayer room and there's anointed music and singers and intercessors and young and old in the early morning, all the way through the night and our night watch teams, we get to do, we have this in our city. And I'm sitting in there this week and I'm just gushing in my heart towards the Lord. I'm just gushing in my heart about you, about this spiritual family and who we are and the, the caliber, the quality of individuals that we have in this community and how much people love Jesus and they want his word and they seek him and they've moved here from Korea and Europe and Boise, Idaho and Florida. Like who wants to leave Florida to come to Grandview for heaven's sakes? Help us, Jesus. Come here to do prayer, and we want our kids to be raised in the house of the Lord. Like, this is glorious. And I'm sitting there this week. I'm just, you know, I, I glance over the news headlines every day, and I'm like, I don't know if you guys know this. The world is going insane right now. I mean, it is getting to a level where I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to get mad about what's happening or just kind of laugh, like, wow, the world is going insane. And I mean, the things that are happening within our culture, within society, within the earth right now, it is unbelievable. And the thing that's touching my heart is, God, thank you for day and night prayer. 
This makes sense. We read the word of God. We look at the eternal purposes of God. To me, it only makes sense that we would be a people of prayer. That prayer, we would be a house of prayer, not the ministry organization, but the reality of it. That is the only thing that makes sense to me right now. And I am just so glad to be here. I'm not just saying that because I'm one of the leaders. Like, come on, everybody, let's be happy. I mean, like, for real, this is so glorious what we get to do. And I'm just so, I'm so grateful for our children's ministry teams and our youth ministry and our ministry school and the prayer room and our church and our friendship group leaders and the things we're doing in the city to reach it. Like, this is just such a joy to be a part of this people. So last week, yeah, thank you, Lord. Last week, I was in South Carolina. My wife and I, we lived there for four years, and it was good to be back in the South again. Now, some people think Missouri is the South. Missouri is not the South, not Kansas City, not where I live. Because in the South, everybody's waving at you. And when we first moved there, we lived <laughs> in South Carolina, I'm driving around, I'm like, why are these people waving at me? Like, do they want something from me? Are they going to hurt me? Like, what's happening? And they're just like, hey! <laughs> so I kind of picked that up, and uh, it was good to be back, you know, in the land of the south where the, where the cornbread flows on rivers of sweet tea. Now, if you live in the south, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, uh, it's just different. It's just different down there. But I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back with you all. Well, we want to get into the narrative. We want to get into the story of, of God's purposes uh, for Israel. Where do we look? We, we look right here in the Bible. This is all about God's purposes for Israel. I mean, everything began in a garden in Eden. The Lord brings a family back to the land from Abraham, and then everything, all of human history is gonna culminate in a garden paradise called the New Jerusalem. I mean, it's all, this is what the story is all about. We're all in the midst of this story. But there's significant challenges to us really engaging with the story and seeing it because a lot of the story is not our own. Though we're to own it and though we're grafted into it, there's a lot of it that's confusing, mysterious. We weren't discipled in it. We weren't raised in it. It's like there's pieces of understanding that are like, what? I'm, my heart doesn't always connect with this. So I want to open by reading this story here, Matthew 2. It's about the Magi, the wise men. This is not a Christmas message. We are on Palm Sunday. I'm getting all my holidays mixed up. But the Magi, because I think it gives us insight into how we're to connect with God's purposes in Israel. Says that they heard the king, they departed, that's speaking of uh, King Herod, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, and it came and stood over where the young child was. They saw the star, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and then they went into the house, which was a Jewish house, and they saw the young child, which was a Jewish young child, Jesus, with Mary, who was a Jewish mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And no one stopped that. I wonder how long that worship went on. 
I mean, it's just a, th- these are real people really worshiping a child and no one's stopping them. No one's like, hey guys, this is getting a little weird. Like we know he's cute, but <laughs> it says, then they open their treasures and they present gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, so here's what this story uh, provokes me in. Here are these guys, these magi, these wise men from the east. They're probably from the Babylon region, okay, modern day Iraq. They have the wherewithal to identify the prophetic season that we're in. And I wonder if we are able to identify the prophetic season right now. The body of Christ, the whole earth is in right now. There is a star arising and it's God's purposes for Israel. That's already been arising. It, it arose a long time ago, but I'm just getting on board with it. So they have the wherewithal to identify the prophetic season. And that's important because Jesus rebuked his generation for not being able to identify the signs of the times. They couldn't see it. He goes, you know when the weather patterns change, but you can't even identify the signs of the times. And he was speaking of himself, his own ministry. He goes, there's things unfolding right in front of you that you can easily miss if you're not paying attention. And I feel like this fast is the Lord putting it right in front of us and going, don't miss this body of Christ. Don't miss my purposes for Israel. Don't miss your Jewish Messiah. Don't miss the season that they're in. Don't miss God's purposes for Jerusalem. Don't miss it. It's right in front of you, just like this star was. So I imagine these magi, and they have to, <laughs> they have to go tell their wives what their plan is. So they go, like, honey, hey, I've got some, uh, got some news. Me and the boys, we were up late last night with the telescope again, and, uh, I know this sounds weird, but we've got to go follow something we saw. You know, and they're like, with their wife's looking at them like, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah, there's this star. Babe, we've got to follow it. (laughs) And she's like, your little astronomy club is going way too far. (laughs) So here they are, and they, they pack up, you know, all their stuff, and, and, it's incredibly dangerous, it's an incredibly long journey, and they go all the way to Israel. It's like about 600 miles walking or riding on an animal, but you're at walking pace, okay? They go, and they go into a Jewish home, it's not their home, and they see a Jewish baby that's not their baby, and they go and they begin to worship this child, and then they begin to give gifts like crazy. And here's what's provoking to me about that. The great expense, the great prophetic insight they have, the great risk that they took, all for the sake to bring worship to someone else. To go and do something that did not directly benefit them. They didn't get revival back at their home church. Their outreach wasn't just all of a sudden more anointed. There weren't all these people like following them back. They did a church plant back in Iraq. Like, come on, guys. It didn't directly benefit them. They were responding to a prophetic purpose that was unfolding in their generation. And they, they laid down their lives for this. They sowed into it. They gave generously to this Jewish family. 
because they recognize the purposes of God. They recognize the person of God that was in this family that was right in front of them. And I'm provoked by that. I'm provoked by that because I read the Bible like it's a Jewish message to an American. Like, this is about me. So I'm going to open up my word and I'm going to read it and I'm going to look at it and like, what benefit is this for me? How does this make my life better? How does this get me more wisdom? How does this bring me more comfort? How does this get the blessings of God going on my life? How can I get the anointing to increase and I approach this Bible like it's written for me and to me and about me? It's not about me. This Bible is a Jewish Bible. It's a Jewish word. You know, when we lead people to Jesus, we need to stop giving them just only the New Testament. We like cut out the Old Testament. We're like, ah, that's old. Don't need that. And people are like, wait, there's like a preface to the story? There's like a prequel <laughs> called the Old Testament? We're like, hey, don't worry about that here. Just take this New Testament. The Bible starts with Matthew. It's a genealogy. It's super boring. But once you get into the story, you'll really like it. They're like picking up the story halfway. And then we spend our whole life as Gentile Christians trying to make this story about us and trying to find us in the story. We're confused that it doesn't mention like Europe and America in here. We're like, why doesn't it mention that? Our roots as believers in Jesus find their roots in a Jewish family called the family of Abraham. And it's all recorded in a Jewish scripture, and it's written by Jewish authors to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah who's going to return to a Jewish homeland, and at the turning of a Jewish nation, he's going to rule that nation from a Jewish city called Jerusalem. He's going to rule the nations of the earth. This is the story, y'all. We've been grafted into a story that is foreign to us because we are foreigners, and once we begin to see that, once we begin to identify that, once we get through the offense of that, the weirdness of that, that's not as exciting, whatever it is, then maybe we can actually touch the humility and the servanthood necessary to become great in the kingdom of God. Because the only way to greatness is by serving another. And the Lord is looking at the body of Christ, he's going, you're my body. Why aren't you serving my people? You never talk about them. You've replaced them. You've ignored them. You're annoyed at them. You've taken their political sides, but you haven't taken my spiritual side. There's so much opinion. There's so much contention over this people and over this city. And there are reasons why. They're not just sociological reasons that developed over time just for no foreseeable purpose. They came about. Some people read the Bible and they ask, where's, where's Israel in the Bible? I, don't, I can't find that. Well, they could be asking, where's everybody else? I mean, we all spend our home in the new Jerusalem. Where do you think that sucker's coming down? Over Jerusalem. We're going to be walking around the heavenly city like confused, like on these foundations, who are these guys? 
where are these names all written here? <laughs> oh, those are, the, those are the apostles. They're all Jews. Those are the tribes. They're all Jews, you know, whatever. So the Lord has inextricably linked the destiny and the hope of the Jew and the Gentile together. Us as Gentiles connected to the Jews, we need one another. We support one another. We gotta fight for each other's destiny in God. The Gentiles, Paul tells us in Romans 11, provoke the Jewish nation to jealousy when we get something on our lives that they actually want. They're provoked to jealousy. They'll be saved. They're gonna come into national salvation, a whole nation, in the day of the Lord. We're to provoke them to jealousy. We need them to invite Jesus back. This is Palm Sunday, where they sang over the Christ, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's Jesus riding in on the colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey, in through the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and they're singing, blessed is he, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders are incensed, they don't like it, he doesn't fit their mold, a whole bunch of reasons. They don't like it. That happens in Matthew 21, and then in Matthew 23, at the end, Jesus looks at the religious leaders, the national leaders of Israel, and he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the arrival, the second coming of our Messiah, our love, the Jesus that we gave our life to, the one that we want, the one that we've devoted ourselves to, only happens when Israel and the Jewish people receive and see him as their Messiah and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want them to say that because I want Jesus back. I don't know about you. Like church is fun, like we're fun, but not that fun. Like it's nice, like you know, the glory of God, we got the anointing of the spirit, we got some prophetic rooms, we got some healing room, we got some cool stories, some things happen, our kid had a dream one time, we're like, whoa, you know? I mean, where the whole human family goes when Jesus, the God-man, is back on the earth and he's filling the earth with his glory? Beloved, that's a good day. We want this to happen. And we have to understand that there's a part that we play, but we can't play someone else's part. And they can't play our part. And we've got to get a vision to serve the purposes of God and the Jewish people in the earth into their prophetic destiny in God because the blessing of heaven only comes to us when we serve others. It only comes... When we rejoice in others, look at Isaiah 66, verse 10 and 11. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy that you may feed and be satisfied. See, in the rejoicing of her glory, in the mourning of her suffering, the those that rejoice and those that the mourn, mourn, they are fed, they're satisfied by God. They drink deeply and they delight 
in the abundance of her glory. When she is in her rightful place, when she is exalted, when she is redeemed, when she is in her land, when the, the covenants that were made to the forefathers, to the patriarchs, when they come to pass, the whole world is gonna rejoice in her light and in her glory. We know that Jerusalem is gonna be a praise in the earth. Isaiah 62, verse seven. We know that God has set watchmen, intercessors, all throughout the nation, and right now, he's calling them to take their place on the wall of intercession to cry out so that Jerusalem will be a praise in the earth. Jerusalem is not a praise in the earth. Everybody's got an opinion about Jerusalem and what she should do and what she shouldn't do and where her borders should be and how she should run her social policy and her foreign policy, and everybody's talking about it actually to the point ad nauseum where we don't even hear it anymore because it's in the headlines so much. You turn on the news, something about Jerusalem. I mean, every day, I don't know, every week for years and years and years. Why is there such controversy around this city and around this people? Why aren't people fighting about London? Why aren't people fighting about New York? Why are people all up in arms and is in a tizzy over Berlin, Moscow? I don't know. It's all about Jerusalem because God has chosen that Jerusalem would be his throne forever. So if you're the enemy, what do you got? You got to keep him off his throne. You've got to create so much confusion and controversy and animosity and just let opinion just run the day or let complete ignorance and silence run the day over his purposes. Jerusalem's gonna be a praise in the earth. I mean, that's just an incredible prophetic word. There's some prophetic words we like read, we're just like, wow, that's so nice. I mean, for real, for that to be real, a praise in the entire earth. Everyone rejoicing in Jerusalem and her destiny and the fullness of who she is. Yay! We are so far from that. The church is almost silent on this issue. And even where the church is talking about it, there's so much mixture and confusion and sentiment that's driving the conversation in the midst of this. And we need an hour of understanding to eject from all of that, get above the clouds and the fog and begin to get God's heart and a biblical vision for his purposes in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Jerusalem's gonna be a praise in the earth, but it must first become a praise in the church. Because a whole bunch of believers believe that the church has replaced Israel. They had their shot, and now it's our turn. Or they're completely silent on it. They never even talk about it. Or they do celebrate it, but they celebrate it only in carnal terms with a carnal understanding. Again, just looking at the natural, not engaging with the spiritual in the conversation at all. So yes, she has a right to exist, and yes, she's in her borders, and yes, did you hear that they got to extend their borders out, and oh no, this, and oh no, that, and we're just so caught up in the carnal, cultural, political, 
historic conversation that we've missed the heart of the bridegroom that's actually gonna rule there. There's a real man. He's really Jewish. His name's Yeshua. He's coming back to that city for those people and he's gonna make that land of praise in the whole earth to where everybody will not wait to get to Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter two, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways. I can't wait to hear that man teach me his ways. I can't wait to hear him sing. I can't wait to hear him prophesy. I can't wait him for him to give the sermon on the mount ten of the Lord. The nations will line up. They'll bring their riches. They'll bring their glory. And the Magi will be standing there, see, like, I told y'all a couple thousand years ago to do this. <laughs> the nations will be lining up. How can we bring honor and wealth? And, and what can we do to serve you, the king of the whole earth? Your throne is in Jerusalem. Oh, it's a glorious day. There's going to be rejoicing. There's going to be songs. There's going to be songs of comfort even now, even before that day and the consummation of all things. And that's a role that the body of Christ is to play, is to rejoice in Jerusalem and rejoice in God's purposes and to comfort the Jewish people and to say, your God reigns in Mount Zion, to sing over her, to love her. To, to see a purpose and a destiny that's maybe not directly ours, but is ours, but isn't ours, and to serve the purpose of someone else. Isn't that how healthy body works? If my liver goes on strike and says, I ain't serving the heart anymore, that's a bad day. The body of Christ only works when it mutually serves one another. A marriage only works when they mutually serve one another, when they don't seek their own glory, but the glory of another. And that's why I think the Gentile church loving Israel is one of the greatest expressions of love that the earth will ever see because it's selflessness. It's a divine love. It's a love that God wants to impart into his people. We can't just get it by reading a book. We can't just get it by hearing a message. It has to be an impartation from the Holy Spirit to a whole generation. Because this isn't about a couple thousand people getting in on it. This is about hundreds of millions of believers across the earth walking in the understanding of these things provoking her to jealousy. Let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12. The Lord calls a man named Abraham. And he says, get out of your country and from your family. And there's three things that I want us to see here. Many of you are familiar with this. But number one is that he calls Abraham to a specific land. There's a specific region. It's a context in which God will bring about his purposes and his glory. They're not just going to fall equally in every single place all at the same time. There's a context, and the context matters. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
In other words, he's gonna bless Abraham's seed and his posterity. And then thirdly, in him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And one of the ways that all the families of the earth are blessed is by salvation in Christ, who is a son of Abraham. Go to page two. Adam's family, Adam and Eve, they're driven out of the Garden of Eden to the east. It says that the Lord drives them out of the garden. And they're pushed east, 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 so that by the time that you get to Genesis 11, you have the building of the Tower of Babylon and mankind trying to regather himself after he's been scattered out of the Garden of Eden. And in the midst of all of those languages and the Lord judges Babylon, judges the Tower of Babel, rather, the Lord judges that. They're all in confusion. They're all trying to huddle up and all that. He sovereignly selects a man named Abram who was an idol worshiper. He's an Iraqi. That's where he lives. The Lord chooses him, and he says to him, get out of your country and come to a land that I'm going to show you. And what he begins to do is he begins to bring Abraham back to where God intends to dwell in a garden paradise with the human family to begin the process of restoration, to redeem what had been lost. What was lost? Paradise was lost. Fellowship with God was lost. Face-to-face -face interaction was lost. The glory of God resting in and on and through his people had all been lost through the fall. And the Lord says, Abram, I'm picking you not because I'm impressed with you. I'm picking you because you're going to be impressed with me. Isn't that the same reason God chose you? You think God was so impressed with your religious devotion and you were just so committed, you had so much potential that he chose to save you and redeem you? No, that's not why he chose us. He chose us so that after we're in the family, we're looking around going, how did I get here? Thank you, God. This is awesome. You've given me the riches of the treasure of heaven, you've given me the riches of the gospel. I have it because of what you did, not because of what I did. I have it because your faithfulness, not my faithfulness. I'm secure in the covenant because of your blood, not my sacrifice, your sacrifice. And the same is true of this man, Abram. He was an idol worshiper. And the Lord said, I've got it. I'm going to I'm gonna wow the earth through this guy and through his family. I'm gonna blow their minds. I'm gonna do something impossible. I'm gonna do something that no one's gonna take credit for, that no one can glory in. I'm gonna get all the glory and God's right to do that and to want that and to receive the glory. So Abraham comes back to begin to restore paradise lost. The scope of the promised land that the Lord gives him, paragraph D, is actually quite vast. It's not the little sliver that Israel presently occupies over there, just off the Mediterranean. 
but it's actually a land, according to Genesis 15, 18, that's approximately 300,000 square miles. Presently, Israel today occupies about 8,600 square miles, only about 2.87% of what God promised to Abraham. If you look at the map there, which I included, and I made so small that nobody under or over 45 can read it. <laughs> Sorry, Siri's getting mad about Israel here. So if you look at this here, the distance from the Nile River to the Euphrates, which God promises Abraham in Genesis 15, is a distance of about 1,500 miles long. This becomes the footprint of what he's spoken to the children of Israel. Now, if you're a student of your Bible and you've read Revelation 20 and you've looked at the distances of the New Jerusalem, you'll find that the distance, one length of the New Jerusalem is approximately 1,500 miles long. God's really good at math. The geographic location of Israel also has significance that we cannot ignore because remember, Abram was over in Babylon and he's called back here and he's called to Mount Moriah. That's where he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, Mount Moriah, which is the hill of the Lord, which is where the temple mount presently is. He calls him back there sovereignly for a particular reason because Israel and Jerusalem would serve as a crossroads for three major continents and almost all of the known nations at that particular time. Right at the crossroads of all of humanity, the Lord says, it's right here that I'm gonna put my peculiar people, I'm gonna put my special people, I'm gonna put my presence, I'm gonna put my throne, I'm gonna put my holy city right at the center so that nobody could walk by and not discover the God of Israel. I'm gonna make this people so blessed. I'm gonna cause them to prosper in such richness and in such wealth. And you know, when Solomon comes along, he builds this beautiful temple so that it would attract the nations as they walk by right here at this crossroads. Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. I want all of them to come. I want all of them to behold my glory. And part of Israel's purpose and the purpose of the priesthood was to serve the nations into the knowledge of Yahweh, into the knowledge of God. And so when Jesus on Palm Sunday cleanses the temple He's cleansing the court of the Gentiles because they had set up money and, and financial means and all of these distractions and barriers to the nations encountering Yahweh. He goes, my house shall be a house of prayer. Get this out of here. The nations are supposed to come through this crossroads and they're supposed to meet my father. And they're supposed to see the glory of the temple and the, and the light glinting off the golden face. They're supposed to go, what is that? Let's go check that out. And that they'll be brought in and grafted in to the family of Abraham. 
the family of faith, the family of God. He wants a big family of all the nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, languages. And he's gonna do it from Jerusalem. All these roads led to Israel and through Israel. And in a poetical sense, all the roads of history are gonna lead back to Jerusalem again. You can see right here on this secondary map, again, very small, that's on me. On this secondary map right here, you see a particular trading route that was called the Via Maris. That's Latin for the way of the sea. And if you know your Bible in Isaiah chapter nine, when it's, a, it's prophesying the coming of Messiah, it says, by way of the sea, those that walk in darkness will see a great light. And if you notice this road, goes right past here and you can see Jerusalem and right above it is a little trading outpost that's called Megiddo. And Megiddo happens to be right in a, in a large valley, valley called the Valley of Jezreel. And on the northern side of that valley, up in the mountains, there was a little town called Nazareth. And Jesus as a young boy would look out on the valley of Jezreel and he would see all the traders and all the merchants passing through the valley of Jezreel and his father said, that is your inheritance. I'm gonna give you the nations and you, my son, are gonna rule from your holy hill in Zion. And it wasn't only the place of his inheritance that he saw as the nations were passing through. It was the place where he would enter into final judgment with the nations who rejected him and persecuted his people. The Valley of Jezreel comes up in Joel chapter three where it says that all of the nations will be brought down to this valley for judgment on account of how they've dealt with the Jewish people in her time of trouble prior to the day of the Lord. And so the Valley of Jezreel and Jerusalem and Israel is not only the place of all the redemption of the world, but also the place of all the judgment of the world. This is the epicenter of God's worldwide purposes. Paragraph F, the seed. When God cursed Satan, he vowed that the seed of the woman would rise, crush the head of the serpent. Isn't it just like God to redeem the most vulnerable person and use them to defeat the greatest evil? He always chooses the obscure, the out of the way, the forgotten, the weirdest methods. Guys, he has weird methods. He's like, we're going to defeat Satan. We're going to defeat hell and the grave. Jesus is like, sweet. How do we do it? He's like, a Roman cross. What? Obviously, that's made up. But, but he always chooses the strangest ways to bring about redemption and power and glory. And he says to the serpent, he goes, you deceived this little girl, Eve. My first 
queen, my first daughter, you deceived her. Through her seed, I'm going to send someone that's going to crush your head. He's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy your kingdom. He's going to bind you and cast you into the lake of fire for all of eternity. The future of this little girl is going to bring about the redemption of the whole world and Satan, your demise. So the seed that came from Eve, that came from Adam, that would go through Abraham, that would go through King David, it could not be destroyed. It was vulnerable. Eve was vulnerable. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was vulnerable. God always chooses the most vulnerable and often the weakest in order to show forth the greatness of his strength and his power and his glory. So he had to preserve the seed. So because of this intrinsic tie now that the Lord gave Abraham about the land, the seed, all the nations of the earth being blessed, the strategy of the enemy is relatively simple. He's just got to do the opposite of the Abrahamic covenant. He just has to do the opposite of it. So he's got to get the Jewish people, the lineage of Abraham, he's got to get them out of the land. Or he's got to get the land occupied to where they don't have leadership. They don't have national borders. He's got to try and cut off the seed to keep the Messiah from coming. He already failed in that. But he's got to try and cut off the Jewish people so that they cannot say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because when they say that, he comes from heaven from the right hand of his father. And the enemy just obscures the message, the good news about this whole story to the whole earth. And if he could do any one of those three things or all three of them, he could either delay, he could stop, he could quench the promises of God. The Lord put himself in a vulnerable position where through the story of history, you see the vulnerability ebb and flow where the time of Esther comes and the whole nation's gonna be cut off, but then God raises up a deliverer. He raises up a great deliverance. He flips the script. And that's the, the story of Israel and the Jewish people all throughout history. The Lord says, I'm gonna accomplish my work with the people I want in the place I want, in the way that I want. And the enemy's doing everything he can to malign that, to stop that, to impede that. So he sends pharaohs, and he sends Nebuchadnezzars, and he sends Herods, and he sends all of these wicked people throughout human history to either destroy the land or destroy the seed or cause the nations to not be blessed through the gospel. but God's gonna win. We're out of time, but go to the last page here on page four, the restoration of all things. I want us to, to get this, Acts chapter three. It's, sec, it's Peter's second sermon after Pentecost. And I want us to make note that Peter's speaking to the Jewish people. And he says, repent therefore and be converted. And that word converted, if you look it up, converted doesn't mean join your nearest Christian church. Start attending mass. Go to 
whatever church. That's not what converted means. Converted means to turn back to your fathers, to turn back to what Abraham believed, what the prophets believed, what Jeremiah believed. Turn back to them. Turn back to their faith. Turn back to their message. Turn back to Moses. He says, later, because Moses prophesied that the Lord would raise up a prophet among Israel just like Moses, but it was Jesus. So he says, be converted, which means to turn back, that your sins would be blotted out, and here's what happens when the sins of the Jewish people are blotted out. Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. When Israel is blessed, all of the nations will be blessed. In her turning will lie the turning of the nations. Times of refreshing will flow like water across the nations of the earth. I want times of refreshing. I like the way things are now, like it's pretty good, I'm thankful, but I want this to happen. Then he says in verse 20, and this is the, this is the real takeaway, when their sins are blotted out, verse 20, he may send Jesus Christ. He's only coming when his own people, his flesh and blood, the seed of Abraham, turns to him. He's only coming then. So I, I hear that. I want Jesus to come. You want Jesus to come. And if, they only, if he only comes when salvation breaks out in Israel, when that veil of partial blindness is lifted and taken away in Christ, I want to do everything in my power to ensure that happens. If it's love, if it's sacrifice, if it's, <clears throat> I'll say this, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, we forget, starts with the word therefore. It says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. The therefore is Paul's message to the Gentile church after he talks about God's purposes for Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He says God has not forsaken them. There's a partial blindness that's coming, that's, that's come, but it's gonna be taken away. They're gonna be grafted back into the tree they're gonna walk in all of my promises. The Gentiles are gonna provoke them to jealousy. Then Romans 12, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Surrender your own life. Surrender your heart to the purposes of God, to love and serve and bless and sing and rejoice in and witness to and share with and sow into the Jewish people. Why? So that times of refreshing will come. And verse 20, he will send Jesus Christ. The Father will. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.